So Variety, the Children's Charity of Illinois, when was Variety started and what was the the mission when it first started? Sure. So Variety, the Children's Charity of the United States, started in 1927 in Pittsburgh. So we are coming up on 100 years as a national organization. And that story was such a cool one. There were 11 uh, men who worked in the entertainment industry. And the story goes, a a baby girl was left at a movie theater, wrapped up with a little note that said, I cannot take care of this little one, but I've always heard of the generous hearts of people in showbiz. And the baby was simply abandoned. And the, the men who were running the Variety Club, which was a social organization, did not have anything to do with charity. They were movie theater owners, which was silent at the time, silent movies, vaudeville, circuses, things like that. They found this baby and they said, well, we have to take care of her. So we call them our 11 godfathers of variety because from her birth until almost age five, they took turns at each other's homes, taking care of the little one they named Catherine. And then it was time for her to go to school. And they realized this family format isn't going to be the best for her. (laughs) She needs one family. And so they found one for her. She was adopted. Her name was changed to Joan. All of this was corroborated by Catherine, then Joan, in 1991. She came out because there was some news coverage back in the day that this may not have been true. Um, And actually, I think that that happened earlier than 1991. But um, she was, she was, I think she passed in 1991. But she came in and she said, I remember the 11 godfathers. This was my adopted family. And the whole story is true. And she announced that at a conference in Los Angeles. So that was the beginning because they then, after she was adopted and started off on her happy life, they didn't know what to do. They were they missed taking care of a kiddo that needed help. So they continued as Variety Club for many, many years. And the Illinois chapter started in 1943. So we are 80 years old, but as an organization, we're all about to turn 100. And the focus on children with disability became more of the mission throughout the United States as the years went on. But our, our overall mission statement is really any child that is disadvantaged or struggling in any way. That's the spirit of what Variety Club originally started as. And now that became Variety, the children's charity. That's amazing. That's a, I love that story. How did um, or why do you think it changed from because um, uh, it seemed like at the beginning it was more of a um, uh, like children that were maybe left behind that needed foster homes mm-hmm. to then children with disabilities. Is that because maybe over the years, more and more charities kind of popped up or maybe the, the states or the government kind of stepped in with kind of uh, fostering children? That, or, the, the, way, the way that the 11 godfathers took care of the original baby was certainly off book, if, if you will. There, there probably were adoption agencies and things that they could have pursued, but they felt very responsible for taking care of Catherine. And when that project was over, I think they were honing in on where's the need. 
And that's something that does continue to change. One of the things that happened during the pandemic was we had to flip for a few months to volunteer only. I, I am the only paid member of the Variety Illinois office, but we have amazing board members and they uh, they ran our office for the time that I had to be on furlough because we had just received an amazing grant that we didn't want to use for my salary. We just mm -hmm. didn't. That was for kiddos. And I'm, I'm happy to share that I feel like that was the right decision because even though we all thought COVID was going to be two weeks and it certainly was not, that was that money was protected and it, it allowed us to come back strong after we were able to start resuming fundraising and taking care of things. But during the time that the board members uh, were running things and we were volunteer only, one of the things we did was we would go to store managers and say, we know everybody is in the same boat here. Everyone needs the Lysol. Everyone needs the paper towels, the things that are hard to get. This is why we are doing it. And we would do family care packs at no cost to our children who had immunocompromisations and drop them off because those parents were even more afraid of COVID than we all were. And we were all very afraid, not knowing what it was, but they had to have nurses come into their homes. They needed those things to continuously clean feeding tubes and medical equipment. So that's, that's not at all what our mission usually is, but we all went out into stores and bought and collected and tried to get access to these things so that the families wouldn't have to do it themselves because that was needed for our families at that time. And with the, the families that you help, I know you're located in Downers Grove, Illinois. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So how are most of the families that you help within for the Illinois chapter in the local area around Downers Grove in the city of Chicago, or do you have families all throughout, you know, even Southern Illinois that you help? Sure. So we have a few different programs and one of them is kids on the go. And I would say that this would go the same for adapt my world. Any child with a disability throughout the state of Illinois can apply for those grants. So those are program-based geographical limitations. Because we are a very small office, the variety of play activities, which are day-long, accessible, inclusive, fun things to do, kind of like field trips, where we have a, we have a day at Navy Pier coming up where everyone's going to get free tickets to ride the Centennial Wheel and things like that. We, we do Days at the Pumpkin Farm, sensory-friendly movie screenings. Those tend to be a little more centered around Chicagoland just because of manpower. But one of our long-term goals is to have a satellite board in Rockford and also in Springfield so that we can kind of form a triangle and hit as much of Illinois with all of our programs as possible. That would be amazing. And, and if anybody wanted to, um, like, ask or, or wanted to help you in those different areas, like what would be the um, opportunity to kind of contact you and um, sure. what would you require with somebody that's like, Hey, I would love to do this in that live in Rockford or Springfield. Um, you know, who, what's the type of person that you're looking for and how can they get in contact with you? We are looking for people who have a heart to help kiddos that need help. And really that's it because everything else can be learned, but 
we need people who have that passion to dig in and identify those local needs and find the local sources of fundraising and who have some time on their hands because it, it is it is a lot. You know, we, we're very proud of our working board. We have 13 members right now and they dig in and spend the time and they're at the events and they're at the board meetings. They, they do the things. So that's not always the case. And that didn't happen overnight or by magic, but that is what is required of an organization, especially an organization with a very small office. And it doesn't get smaller than party of one. So you do need to surround yourself with volunteers who are committed, who are just as excited about the cause as, as I am, but I, I get a paycheck and we can't not acknowledge that volunteers don't. So the passion is even more important from them because that's the whole entire reason they're doing it. Yeah. And, um, I was just talking with, uh, one of my last guests and he, he made a, uh, he's got this saying that says no money, no mission. Um, and I, I, that really stuck with me because a lot of people, um, you know, with thinking of uh, nonprofits that are just starting out, they're like, Oh, I really don't want to ask my donors for money or, or I just asked for them for money and I don't want to have to do it again. But, you know, if you really think about it, like, you know, people are willing to help and they'll help in any way you, they can. And you just have to ask. And you know what, if they can't do it this time, you ask, no worries. Maybe they can do it next time. But if you don't have money or donations coming in, you really can't help and, and provide that value um, to, to the people that you're helping in the community. Um, so it's one of those things where you just got to, you got to ask, um, you know, for donations and, and not be afraid to, um, you know, ask regularly, I guess. Uh, I don't, I know you don't want to do it too often, but, um, you know, what is your thought about like, how often do you fundraise? How often do you ask for contributions? Is there certain times of year that you always ask for? Like if I'm a, a nonprofit just starting out, like what, what's kind of your, uh, I guess, framework for, for asking for donations and, and how often and when throughout the year? Sure. My piece of advice on that part of it is to be patient because it does take a very long time to build up a donor base and a structure of corporate sponsorships and to establish where your grant funding or government funding, things like that might come from. We're still growing and I've been in this position for almost 10 years. So we're still learning. And you also, you have to be willing to always be learning because there's new information coming out all the time. And if some, maybe somebody just joins your board or is a volunteer, you find out what the company that they happen to work for, what their policies and procedures are. So keep your mind open and be patient is my piece of advice. As far as uh, how often, I would say that we are pretty good about diversifying the ways that we ask. We do things like an annual coffee sale for the holidays. And that's a 25% give back to the organization. It's an item that is easy to sell because a lot of people drink coffee. Even if they don't, it's a really great gift because most people do. 
And it's, it's a really nice return. It's also a really high quality coffee that, you know, we were very happy to taste test over time and we have a really good quality product now. So that also takes some time and patience to develop. So um, Giving Tuesday is also the start of the holiday season. Um, That's kind of like the Hunger Games of the nonprofit world, because unfortunately, it feels like we get pitted against each other. But we, we kind of embrace it and kind of go with, you know what, everyone's asking for a donation today. We are another great nonprofit that you should be supporting. And like you said, you know, maybe you get the, some of the same donors every year and sometimes you don't and they're supporting some other. There are so many different ways to give back in your community. And we really like to operate under the mindset better together. So a- another example with the pandemic, a lot of donations were going to basic necessities like food banks, the Red Cross, frontline workers. Okay, you know what? That was not maybe the time that people were thinking about a mission like ours. It was no less important, but everything comes back around. And when you're thinking about the joy on a kiddo's face when they're celebrating the holidays and get their first bike, Mm. it reminds you kind of why we do what we do, because not every family has that opportunity. So that, that is kind of exactly what we're trying to do, no matter if it's a trip to a a carnival that has special hours so you don't have to wait in line as long, or a a bike or an adaptive stroller, things like that. It's, It's about making those moments of childhood that we sometimes maybe take for granted as normal as possible, because that's that's the joy of being a kid. So sometimes you just need a little adaptation. Um, beyond the holiday season, uh, we do Super Bowl squares. Um, that one's really fun and not allowed to say Super Bowl, am I? So we do super squares for football uh, in, in February. And that's always a very popular fundraiser for us. It's, it's always fun to watch the big game. And so this just adds a little more excitement. As the year goes on, we have a, a dinner in April. Uh, there's programming throughout the year. I'm just thinking about kind of fundraising elements. We do over the summer, we usually do a a day at the ball game and that's uh, you buy the tickets and there's a a donation included and you get a nice package. And then at the same time, we're also hosting variety families to come to the same game already paid for. So our families all get donors and variety families get to interact. That's a really fun one. We have an annual golf outing that's usually in August and we do comedy nights uh, that'll usually be in the fall and kind of, you know, a lot of things sometimes will just present themselves. And again, that goes back to staying open to not having everything on the whiteboard at the beginning of the year. There's going to be expenses that pop up that you're not expecting expecting, but there's also going to be fundraisers and donations that you don't expect. Now, do you think that um, at the beginning of the year when you're planning, do you just, you do have core events that you just do regularly? And then, you know, those are the, the, like, let's just, well, how many core events do you have? And then, you know, in the filler time in between, that's kind of where those like 
pop-up events might come in. Sure. What are some of those like core events that you have? And uh, also, if you can kind of just elaborate on how you kind of keep your, uh, let's just say, contact list or Rolodex for sponsors or like like the, the ball game, like I'm sure like the Sox or the Cubs, I'm sure you have somebody, you know, a department or a phone number you have that you're like, hey, um, we're calling again. What can you help? You know, like talk about how you set this up. Like, and and the reason I'm asking this just to kind of give you some context is like, I think every everybody that runs a nonprofit should think of it like a business. And the more you can kind of have these like almost playbooks of like, Hey, on this, in this month, during this weekend of this month, every year, we do this event and this event, and here's the contact list of who we can reach out to, to kind of have filler events. Um, so talk a little bit about kind of how you kind of structure your, your year at the beginning, what those core events are. And then also like, you know, how you kind of keep your Rolodex of, of, I guess, sponsors or, or events, um, you know, handy. Sure. We have two tentpole events. So that would be the dinner in April and the golf outing in August. So we don't know exactly which day that will occur while we're planning, but we do know that it's going to be in spring for one and late summer, early fall for, for golf. Our third core program is the Gold Heart Pin Program. This is a, an international effort and because of our original ties with the showbiz industry, we're very lucky that we still have partnerships with movie studios, which also allows for us to do some really fun things. But one of them is the Gold Heart Pin fundraiser. And I'm, I'm wearing, I think I've got Mickey Mouse on right now. <laughs> and these are for sale in movie theaters once, sometimes twice a year, depending on which... Uh, studio is our partner for the year really wow. yes and what they do is this is actually from fantasia from the re-release so mm -hmm. it's mickey's hand and you know there's a little star on it so that was a, a disney cycle uh our most recent cycle at this point was from paramount so we had uh teenage mutant ninja turtles so each of them take a turn uh, all the studios that we work with, and we do work with most of them, they take turns and they decide pretty much who's going to be on the pin. And it's it's been a lot of fun. We've had uh, Spider-Man, Star Wars, the Minions, and those those are some really exciting campaigns to be a part of on an international level because it's it's an easy item to promote. For We sell them in theaters for $3.00. So people are free to donate more if they like. The only problem with that campaign is we don't get to decide the timeline. We get told yeah. it's going to be the Spider-Man pin and it's going to happen during this month. So then we reach out to our partners at, at Classic Cinemas, Cinemark, all, you know, all of the theaters that, that we work with and kind of say, OK, here's the plan. And they are so fantastic. Their employees get so enthused about it. And some of them keep uh, visual collections on lanyards of every oh, wow. pin that they've worked on. And that's really fun just to, to see, the, the, especially the young people, they get so into fundraising for Variety Kids. The last time that I popped into a local theater, the young man behind the counter asked me if I wanted to buy a pin. And I said, Yes, I would like all four of them, please. And he said, 
how do you know there's four? <laughs> so I introduced myself and we had a lovely chat and he, he was very proud to show me that he was wearing all of the pins since he had been hired. And it was, it was, it was really cool. So those are the, those are the three main fundraisers. Two of them we can plan and we plan them as you know far apart from each other as possible. The one is always an X factor. But as far as keeping our sponsorships and donors relevant and current, I would say there, there's really no secret sauce to that other than typical stewardship, you know, staying in touch, doing the thank yous, making sure that the people who donate are on your monthly newsletter or however you choose to communicate, and occasionally doing that ask if you haven't gotten a donation in a while you know, make sure that you're not asking the wrong person. If you haven't heard from somebody for a year, maybe they have moved on and you have to make a phone call and, and see, you know, who is who I should talk to now. And that, that takes a lot of work. So that's, again, where a smaller charity, you need volunteers because you can't do everything by yourself. And I try. Hmm. It doesn't work. <laughs> you need a lot of help to yeah. keep things like that current. Well, I think uh, one mistake a lot of smaller nonprofits make is really the thank you letter, you know, and just saying, oh, even if they donate $5, like just giving them the thank you of just the acknowledgement of like, hey, your donation means a lot. Or if they donate an item or sporting event tickets or anything, like any type of recognition to just say thank you, you know, I'm sure the donor may or may not um, really be expecting it. But I think when they receive it, like out of the blue, when I make a donation and I receive a handwritten, uh, postcard in the mail from somebody from the organization, I'm like, wow, like I actually forgot I made that donation, but thank you so much. And now it's back on my radar. And, right. um, you know, it's, it's definitely, I feel like one of those things that's very, very important to make sure you never forget. Absolutely. And handwritten is, it's the way to go because who gets fun mail anymore? Mm -hmm. So I, I really would encourage that. And of course, you know, sometimes there's not time to hit every single donation with a handwritten thank you note, but whenever you can, or if it's a significant donation and include pictures, if it's, mm -hmm. you know, a sponsorship for an event, that's what we did after the golf outing this year, we had an amazing photographer and included some prints, you know, it, this was the sponsor. So we included a print of their, their company signage out on the course, as well as the folks that came and just said, Hey, thank you. You know what? You guys made a difference. This was our best golf outing yet. We couldn't have done that without you. <laughs> yeah. That's such valuable, um, insight right there. Um, when it comes to, um, the number of children that you've helped over the years, I'm sure it's more than you can even fathom, but do you have a rough number or stat that you've kind of kept over the years? And, you know, what is the total number since you started? It's 80 years. So that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, what's usually like the average number of um, families or children that you help uh, on a yearly basis? So everything per year is it kind of comes down to how expensive are the items that are being requested because we don't just do adult tricycles. That's our most popular item that is requested, especially for kiddos on the spectrum, because even though 
there is no further adaptation needed. Um, just having three wheels is really important for balance. And that's one of the most requested items. Mm. That's only a couple hundred dollars, but we've, we've done one bike that's thousands of dollars. So that it does, it, it varies from year to year, but because we also do the variety of play events and a lot of times those tickets are donated, there's different ways of measuring success. So our, our average number of total families helped is usually around 2,500 per year. That's still wow. growing. So over just the years, Illinois. just in Illinois, yes. Everyone oh, has no. to be an Illinois resident and that That's could be, it is. It I is. Thinking you say just that many in just Illinois. So I was thinking <laughs> across the, the United States, but no, wow, no, no. Across amazing. the United States, it's millions, literally millions. And wow. we're, you know, we are one of the smaller tents because of, you know, we are a smaller office. And, you know, that's that's another thing when you bring up kind of the comparison to other charities and geography here in Illinois, there are some very popular top of mind charities that are, and they're phenomenal. Variety doesn't have the same recognition that let's use Make-A-Wish as, as an example, because that's very national. That's something that is very close to people's hearts. There are ways that we function the same way that Make-A-Wish functions, because sometimes a child's dream is to own their own bike. And depending on their condition, that may have never been a possibility. That was actually one of the things that happened recently that really touched my heart. Uh, we, we got a, a bike to a young lady uh, in Quincy, Illinois, right on the Mississippi River. So we really do go everywhere. And we just, for something like that, we would usually team up with a local bike shop in Quincy, have it mailed, things like that. And, but we happened to have already built the exact bike she needed. So I made the drive and got to meet this wonderful young lady named Maddie and her family. And she was she, talking to us about how excited she was that she was going to get to go out with her friends. She, she's going to be her own advocate. She explained fully to me that she didn't think it was fair that she didn't get to ride with her friends and. And this is not a young girl. This is high school. You know, she, she knows what's up. And yeah. after the fact, we got a note from her mom that said that we made her dream come true. Wow. And it really did touch my heart because as the person who gets to open those emails and the person who got to meet Maddie and see how excited she was for that to be the follow-up. And, and she, she referenced Make-A-Wish in that note, she said, it, it feels like we got to make a wish because you really made her dream come true. And, you know, to be favorably compared to another organization, we'll, we'll take it. It's okay. Better together. And you know what? They can do things for other kids that maybe we can't, but we, we helped change Maddie's life that day because she gets to go play with her friends. What a simple gift. That's amazing. That's a very touching story for sure. I, I couldn't imagine the 
the joy not only on her face but even on your face when you're when you're able to kind of give these gifts and you can kind of see the families like light up and and, and the child that's receiving the gift uh maddie you know like i could you just i'm sure made her year um, and it's just such a great feeling, which is why, you know, people start nonprofits and they work for nonprofits and they do that because that joy and the love that you get to give and receive is just, un, you know, just undescribable, I think. So it, it's, it's wonderful. There's how nothing you, like it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, how did you get into this? So obviously you didn't start the organization or the chapter because it's 80 years old. And obviously I could see that you're not 80 years old. <laughs> Uh, but how did you get into it and what drove you into the position that you're in now? So I was a publicist for a movie theater. And one of the things that we would do is we would have celebrity events that I would get to be the publicist and take them around to different news outlets and conduct interviews in the channel of publicity instead of, say, running a promotion and paying so much for advertising. So it was it was pitting the ways that we could get free promotion for this cool thing that we are doing versus spending a bunch of money on letting people know about our movie theater. And we would have all different types of celebrities and TV stars come in. And I, I started noticing that sometimes people would ask us, Hey, is this a is this something that we can do as a fundraiser? I very much recall uh, Easter Seals working with us when we were doing the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. and we had a tent out in our parking lot, and they had the you know the 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 two stars that came that year were James and Oliver Phelps, who played Fred and George Weasley, and part of doing this fundraiser was for one showtime, this organization got all the screens at our movie theater. And so they also then got an hour with James and Oliver to themselves. And that was kind of the, the kickoff for me because it was then easy to see how you can turn really cool things into these amazing fundraisers for great causes. So I kind of just started doing that whenever I could, one of which being our our spring gala started out as an annual Oscar party. And this was well before I even was on the board of Variety, the children's charity. It was just something that we I started doing as a function of marketing and thought, okay, well, it's it's going to sell better and we'll give everyone more reason to want to attend if we're working with a charity. How about if we do that charity that we go to the golf outing dinner every year? Because I was a theater person. I was one of those theater type people that our our original godfathers belonged to. So the Oscar party became a fundraiser for Variety, the children's charity, for probably eight years before I realized I'm turning as many of these celebrity appearances as I can into fundraisers. And that's, that's where my heart is. So it became a natural transition because I started kind of on the theater end of things and moved into the variety side of things. And I'm lucky enough that I still get to work with so many of the same people because there's a lot of natural crossover. So 10 years in the marketing job and now 10 years at variety, but I have found my home and hope to retire here. 
Oh, very nice. And with being a publicist in the business world, how how have those skills and what do you do now as a publicist for a nonprofit that somebody can kind of take and, and what would be an easy thing for someone with no publication skills or publicist skills, I should say, uh, to be able to like take one or two little nuggets and be able to do and have an impact in their organization? Uh, Google is going to be your best friend, but I would say to make sure that you have a press ready list because it's Google how to write a press release. If you have an event coming up, if you're going to do a, a, a presentation of some sort, whatever your nonprofit is about and look up, how do you contact the news desk at the major stations? Call your local radio station. See if you could get a, a spot for five minutes on in the morning show and see if they can talk to you. And you can find these things. These are all publicly available pieces of information. Build your own little press list. You don't need to have gone to school to become a publicist to learn how to become a publicist, especially now. Because, mm -hmm. and I'm still, a, I, I'm such a marketing nerd. I, I love learning about new ways of doing things and social media. And these things weren't around when I went to school. I assure you, I learned how to edit on a rollerball system yeah. for manually operated TV cameras. Mm. Those don't exist anymore, but that's where my education was. So it's just really about kind of looking for figuring out what the right questions are to ask. Because if you can figure out the right questions, the answer is right there on the internet or amongst your team of volunteers. I also feel that um, some people are like, might be shy or they're like, uh, I don't want to come off too salesy. It's like uh, when you're a nonprofit, you have to have that mindset of being like, hey, I'm making these phone calls and I'm trying to convince these people at the news or radio stations to take three minutes or five minutes and just make a blurb about, you know, our event or, or, or anything. And I'm sure that they're more than happy to help a nonprofit in any way that they can. So somebody that works for a nonprofit that has that scared mindset of, Hey, I don't want to reach out because I don't want to be rejected. I think you have to really just step back and be like, Hey, one, you're doing this for a good cause. It's not like you're trying to sell um, a business or a product or a service. You're really just trying to help the community in some way. And if you could just get that across and, and sh tell them like, Hey, this is who we help. This is why we're doing it. And this is the event that we're hosting. And would you mind, you know, just making a mention of it or anything like that? I'm sure the success rate of people saying, Hey, yeah, I could definitely do that is pretty high. It's really high, and I am going to share that I am a huge introvert, and most people don't believe me because when I talk about variety and our kids or our stories, I'm also very comfortable with it by now, but it's a lot easier, especially than it used to be, but it's also a lot easier than being a publicist at a for-profit business that somebody may or may not have interest and it's up to me to do the spin. Our story tells itself. It's on me to make sure as many people as possible hear that story. But if, if you just try, try to remember that you're not doing it for yourself, you're doing it for the kids or the animals or the veterans or whatever your cause might be, 
because it's a lot easier also to do something for someone else than it is to do something for yourself, especially if you're charity minded. So definitely there's nothing to be afraid of. And by the same token, if somebody says no, or I can't, it's not personal. It means the news cycle is full or they're, they've been tasked to focus on something else. So again, that, I guess that's where the passion comes in because I can talk to people about variety kiddos all day, every day, but then I'm going to, you know, cuddle up and recharge and, and kind of be my introverted self again, which I need to do on my own. And that's okay. You know, just get your message across the way you need to. Yeah. I also think that when you're talking about your nonprofit, everybody should have a story of somebody that was impacted by their organization kind of in their back pocket, because that's what I think people need to hear to buy into your nonprofit's mission. Um, it doesn't matter what the nonprofit is. I think you just need to have a, like a success story in your back pocket, because when you're sitting there talking with somebody and you can just tell the story of Maddie, right? Um, like everybody should have a story of Maddie in their back pocket that they can just bring up at any time, because that's where people are going to connect to that story and be like, oh my God, like, I want to be able to do that. Like, where, where can we help you, you know, create more Maddies and, and what can we do to help you? And I think that story is really kind of that thing that people like to hear and they can relate to. And it really helps it to sink in about your mission. Absolutely. That, that is a fantastic piece of advice because Unless you are a parent, a teacher, or a therapist, doctor of a child with a disability, you really don't have a frame of reference mm -hmm. for what these kids are dealing with, how much harder it is. And the reality is having a disability is the one charity, nonprofit mission out there that any one of us can become a member of the disability community at any moment due to an accident or eventually old age. So when a child has an accident or is born with uh, developmental challenges, uh, if, if a child is born with a developmental disability, they, they, are telling, they are telling the story for you. And we are just trying to connect the dots between the people who need to hear it and want to help to the kiddos that we are able to to just help them improve their lives. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of the equipment could be like bikes, but you have other medical devices and things like that, that you purchase for the families based on the specific need. What do you, what is the reason that like insurance won't cover some of these devices that you purchase? That, that is why you can help <laughs> step in and do it. It's, it's, it's a, a, an unanswerable question from where I sit because the need has certainly been demonstrated. Mm -hmm. It probably just comes down to dollars and cents. So at this time, one of the facts that, that is true for most commercial insurance policies that is unimaginable is that anybody, but also children, are only given one wheelchair every five years. If you think about the difference between what a two-year-old needs to get around and what a seven-year-old needs to get around, and then maybe a 12-year-old versus a 17-year-old, there's a lot of growing that goes on between mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. even though it's great that insurance covers a wheelchair, 
they only do it in time periods that don't actually address the whole picture. Sometimes, even though we say, you know, adaptive sports wheelchairs, that's something insurance never covers because mm -hmm. that is specific to an activity and activities are optional. That's yeah. not how we look at it. That's how the insurance company looks at it. But sometimes we are doing wheelchairs just for kiddos who have outgrown their wheelchair and need one before their five years comes up for the next one that gets covered. So that is one of the things that we do. I've had the chance to speak to a few insurance companies on behalf of the families and say, you know what, five years isn't, that's too long. And these are the families that we're trying to help and we're gonna do what we can in the meantime. But if this is something that on a corporate level you can reconsider, we we have the the data for you. It's needed. <laughs> yeah, that's a it's amazing. Um, they just have basically their protocols that were probably set so long ago and haven't been updated in you know tens of you know years. I don't even I couldn't even tell you how long. Um, you know, it's just part of the the program and the bureaucracy that they you know kind of go through um, and. Yeah, I guess it's all a profit machine for them too. So it's, you know. It, it has to be because otherwise money. they couldn't perform what they do for a living either. So yeah. it's just it's just a matter of filling the gap where we can and keeping these families out of poverty. It costs annually three to four times more to raise a child with a disability than it does a typically developing child. And that's not a small amount of money. Yeah. So. Well, it's amazing. And I think you're doing amazing work over there. Um, last question before we kind of wrap up from, you know, what you've learned coming from the corporate world to now kind of running the organization, what were some of the, the things that some of the, like the learning curve, uh, that you can kind of teach another or, or tell another nonprofit to say, Hey, this is what I kind of struggled with. And this is how I kind of got through it. And uh, just something that can kind of maybe a, a story or situation that you weren't really thinking of before you came in uh, to to actually running the nonprofit that, um, you know, would be beneficial for somebody else that's either just starting off or, or in a similar situation as you. One of the things that I noticed when I was at my for profit job was you usually get a better result if you can create a win win for whoever you're dealing with or asking things of. And when I worked at the movie theater, that was a lot easier to do because if we were having a celebrity signing, you could offer, hey, just, you know, meet me at the side door, no line, I can take care of you, free tickets, here's dinner. It was one of those cool theaters that had dinner and a movie. So I, I had a little more agency about striking a bargain. Working for a nonprofit is different because we can't do that in a traditional sense. We are the ones that have to be kind of the beneficiary of most relationships. That only forces you to be a little more creative about creating a win-win. One of the things that we have been doing lately is offering companies that, um, that are therapy clinics uh, informational seminars, if you would, 
one of one of our our president right now is a therapist and she has three children who have cerebral palsy and she has a lot of information about how to navigate through the therapy system so she can offer a talk about that to the clinic patients and that's that's something they don't have to pay for if they work with us that's something that they get as a benefit one of the people on our board is a lawyer and she specializes in special needs families. And that is also something that we can offer at a library that maybe wants to partner with us. So here's a piece of programming, again, that you don't have to pay for. It's us taking our natural abilities and what we do for a living and finding ways to create those win-win partnerships because your sponsors and your corporate donors are then also going to feel much more valued as a partner because they are getting something back. And that's mm -hmm. usually not how the mindset of charity works. You're, yeah. you, you donate a set amount of money, you did your good deed and you move on. But if you're also getting something tangible back, either for yourself or for your clientele, you're going to want to work with that nonprofit more than to somebody who just said thank you, but you also have to say thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that also goes to show that when you're when you're forming your board, you know, it's good to try to find the people that have those skill sets, like an attorney or even like a graphic designer or maybe somebody in marketing, you know, just to kind of be on the board to to you, you can't do it yourself, right? Like, it, well, you can, but it's it's hard. It's easier with a team, right? It's so much easier with a team, and it's yeah. it's not a fun job when you try to go it alone. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, um, Angelique. It's been wonderful. I loved hearing about variety. I think you guys are doing an amazing work, and I'm actually my mind has blown about how many kids you actually help on a yearly basis. Um, the number was 2,500. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, that's that's amazing. Just in Illinois, 2,500 um, uh, kids that you help with disabilities. It's it's an amazing success story. I wish you all the luck in the future. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, we're going to include links to um, you know finding out more information about your organization, uh, links to donate uh, through your website. Um, one last thing I actually do want to say, which might be valuable for nonprofits is I love the idea of creating something that is like a collector's item. That's a donation gift. Like those pins at the movie theater are amazing because you're right. Like people like collecting things yes. and it's something that maybe any nonprofit, if you can just think of something as simple as a pin and maybe work it with a designer, you can find freelance designers online for, for very inexpensive and create some type of a collectible where, you know, people will collect these things um, and display them and be proud of them. I mean, I mean, that right there is just a great idea for, for any organization. Yeah, I'm thinking even PTOs, like at schools can create that, you know, um, and it could be something that you, when your kids are just in school for four, four years, you know, they can collect for the four years, but they might want to keep collecting even after their kids have moved on to, you know, high school or out of school. Right. Absolutely. Um, so it's a way to kind of keep people, you know, kind of coming back to your nonprofit or your organization regularly. So I think that was a, a great gem. I uh, loved the conversation today. 
I wish you all the luck and uh, hopefully this, uh, your message today will reach some people and we'll get you some new, um, you know, donors, members, and just people interested in helping uh, these kids with disabilities and, and doing whatever they can to kind of help support you and your mission. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is a wonderful chance for us to share what we do and we're so grateful. That's amazing.